I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Okay, so today, this, this is part four in our Mark series, in our series going through the Gospel of Mark verse by verse, and we're going to deal with the temptation of Jesus by Satan, um, which is a really intense and really interesting passage, both for theological reasons, because it has profound implications for our theology. It, it challenges what we believe about Jesus when we think about him being tempted. And um, there's neat typology, I think, that's here. And I, I really want to highlight that and just have spend some time on that. And there's also important application for our daily lives because we battle as well. And that's probably where we really got to drive it home, is applying this into our hearts and lives, the spiritual war that we're in. So first, we're just going to read through the passage. We're going to notice the elements. It's only two verses long. So you should be able to just just soak up these two verses. We'll be getting into a lot of scripture tonight, but we're bouncing off just two verses in Mark. And here we are in Mark 1, verse 12 through 13. Just notice what it says. Immediately. And by the way, sorry, I got to tell you, this is after the baptism, right? Jesus shows up on the scene. John the Baptist, he baptizes him. He, the, he receives the spirit. Is said, uh, the father says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then he is in verse 12. Immediately, the spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. It's, it's tempting as a teacher to just stop at every word of a verse and spend 20 minutes on it. I try to avoid doing this as much as possible because I realize you lose the verse when you do that. So we're going to tackle it somewhat topically here. Um, First, let's just look at the big picture. The big picture of this really short little account in Mark, it's really important, but really short. The big picture is this. Jesus is subject to temptation. Jesus is subject to temptation. That's profound. He's God with us, yet he's also tempted. And not just any temptation, he's subject to satanic temptation. Satan himself trying to tempt Jesus. And Jesus overcomes sin and Satan in our place. And that's, I think, the big picture of the temptation of Jesus. Just as the baptism he does, he does on our behalf, so to speak, it pictures what he'll do, his death and resurrection. So here he goes and he's tempted and overcomes where all of us have failed. That's the big picture. So I don't want to lose that. But I think it's multifaceted. So the, so the rest of the study, we're going to cover four main topics. Here they are. You ready? I like to tell you what I'm going to tell you and then tell you and then tell you what I told you. That's like a teaching tactic that I was taught. Did you get all those T's? That was really good. It's unintentional. All right. So first, first, Christology. We're going to deal with the Christological issues that come up. Like Christology is just the study of Christ, like ology study of Christ. So Jesus being tempted, that brings up some really interesting questions about the incarnation right? Uh, Second, typology. We'll look at typology and how Jesus is the greater Moses, the greater Israel, and the last Adam. I think those all relate to the passage I just read you in Mark, and I'll explain that. Third, we'll look at, third, we'll look at Satan. Uh, Not directly, but we'll examine the idea and the concepts of Satan and him being involved in this whole process, because it's not just temptation, it's Satan tempting him. And then fourth, we'll have some important lessons for our own temptation that we can deal with. Um, I'm not going to stress too much the stuff that comes in the other gospels, because this is where I always hear people teach on the temptation of Jesus. They focus on the quotes in Deuteronomy and the Old Testament and how they're taken out of context and all that. I'm actually not going to focus on that because we're Mark. I'll mention it, but it won't be the emphasis today. So let's deal with the first issue, Christology. Jesus being tempted raises immediately some questions in my mind. 
right? Because James 1.13, it tells us that God cannot be tempted. Jesus is tempted. So what is going on here? That's the, I mean, because you can't, don't tell me Jesus wasn't tempted. The verse we just read says he was tempted by Satan. And then Hebrews 4.15, it says he was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And so immediately we're starting to deal with an important theological concept. Now, the interesting thing is, so often it's in these like this, this, uh, this question mark that pops up in your head, God can't be tempted, Jesus is tempted. It's an understanding that, that, that we're forced into understanding the proper understanding of who Jesus is. It's like this difficulty causes you to be pushed into the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ. It's, you'll see. We'll do it right now, with you, right along with you. We're going to do this. So uh, some people, they try to resolve this issue by saying, well, um, God is tempted, actually, in the Old Testament. James 1.13 is just saying he can't be tempted by evil, meaning he has no internal inclination towards evil. So that's because if you read the rest of James 1.13, he can't be tempted by evil. There's nothing in him that desires wickedness. So he can't be tempted by those things. Um, But there are Old Testament passages that talk about them tempting or testing God. Several of them. I'll give you one example. Psalm 106, verse 13 and 14. It's talking about how the, uh, the Jewish people were there in the wilderness and they tempted God, at least in some sense. That's this, this verse right here, 106, Psalm 106, verse 13 and 14. They quickly forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but craved intensely in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. They tempted God. In fact, even in the conversation with Satan, Jesus says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. So these are obviously different kinds of temptation, right? There's, there's, the word is used in various ways. When we say don't tempt God here, we're saying don't give God a righteous reason to smack you down. We're not tempting God to do evil. We're, we're sinning and he, in being the holy righteous judge of all the earth, we're giving him a reason to come and deal with us. So don't test God like that. Don't push your luck. He's being gracious to you. Don't mess with him. You know, it's like that's kind of the idea here is that we're in rebellion and that rebellion calls out for judgment. So, so God's not there being tempted to do anything evil. Right? We're just giving him a reason to judge us and we're being told not to do that. Um, so that's one way of, of reconciling this. But there's an important aspect that I think um, uh, we have to understand. That's the two natures of Christ. This is something the early church really discussed a lot. Um, they, really, they didn't want to give up these two truths about Jesus. That Jesus was truly human and truly God. That was really important to the early church. And because it's in the scriptures, because as they're debating and talking about it, as you read the documents, you know, it's like, they're like, but it says this in the text, like the, the inspired scriptures tell us this about Jesus. Therefore, he's truly God. So I'll give you a couple examples. Colossians 2.9, it says, for in him, all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. All the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. He's, he is God with us. In John 1, 1 through 3, one of my favorite passages about the identity of Christ It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So he's God, but he's also with God. These are truths that we cannot deny if we're going to trust the Bible. He's with God, but he's also God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So he didn't come into being. He just already existed. He's preexistent eternally. He is God, but he's also with God. What is this? Well, it's the doctrine of the Trinity being forced upon you through the pages of the Bible. That's, that's what's happening here. In John 1, 14, we read about that same word that was with God and was God. And it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the word became flesh. So the, the first pillar or nature of, of, of Jesus that we're going to talk about here is that he is God, truly God. He's really God. He's not a piece of God, a part of God. He's not some lesser being. No, he was with God, but he was God. That same God, he, he is with and is God because they, they're unified. It's the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, challenging, yes, but avoidable, no. You can't avoid the doctrine of the Trinity in the pages of the scripture. But he's also truly man. He's truly man. This is what they said the early church would say as well. Um, first off, I'll say this. The virgin birth was not like a sham. I mean, the birth of Christ being born of Mary, him being called her son, it wasn't like God's like, ha ha ha, that's not really a person. Like, I'm just messing with you. Like, that's not the case. The whole point of the incarnation is that he came in a human form. Romans 1.3, it says, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh. So not only is he in a real human body, but he's in a real human body that can be said to be a descendant from the line of David, which is humans, right? So he's truly God and he's truly man. In 2 John verse 7, we read this because in the early church, I mean early, early, like first century, one of the heresies that cropped up fairly early on was the idea not that Jesus wasn't God, but that Jesus wasn't man. This was, this was a heresy where they, in fact, we have writings that go back quite a ways where they, in the, from the second century, that say things like, when Jesus walked on the sand, he left no footprints. So, so that explains the whole footprints in the sand poem that you guys have been quoting all the time. And because they were like, he didn't, he didn't leave footprints because he wasn't even really in a human form. It just looked like it. Because they thought that, you know, that can't happen. Okay, he can be God with us, but he can't be God in human form. So 2 John verse 7 says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. See, it wasn't that they said he wasn't God, it's they said he wasn't flesh. He wasn't man. So he's truly God, truly man. And that's what we have, the, the doctrine of the two natures of Christ. One person, just Jesus, but he has two natures. He's, he is both God and and man at the same time. Now, some people, they, they like cash this out by saying Jesus is 100% man and 100% God. I avoid those things because um, for one thing, um, percentages don't really work like that. <laughs> you then have, he, so he's 200%. <laughs> what, is, what does that mean exactly? Then if you try to break it down where he's 50% God, 50% man, we're, we're separating Jesus into like two different beings or something. And that's, that's weird. That doesn't work. We just say truly, we, we stick with scripture, right? He's truly God, clearly from the teaching of scripture, truly man, clearly from the teaching of scripture. Two natures, God and man, one person. This, I think, is the answer to the riddle of how Jesus was tempted. Because now he has a human nature. He's, he didn't stop being God. He just took on additionally human nature. So now he can be tempted. Why? Because he has human desires, human weaknesses, like he was fasting in these 40 days while he's tempted by Satan. He's fasting. He's hungry. In other words, there's an internal desire to eat, yet there's a, there's a spiritual imperative to not eat. So he feels the pull to eat, but he, but, but he won't eat. He chooses not to. So he's actually tempted. 
do you see that it's the human nature of Christ that allows him to be tempted? He's experiencing weakness. He had real desire for physical food. He also had a desire for self-preservation. You may be familiar with this desire. It's pretty stinking strong in us. My desire for self-preservation gets pretty intense. When I first got married, um, I'd had a, there was, I was over at, uh, over at our, our friend's home and there was an earthquake. And I've like been, I was, I'm way better now because I started praying about this and God like totally helped me out. But I used to be like scared of earthquakes, like really it's sudden fear, you know? And so we have this big earthquake, boom, the house shakes and everyone's like looking around like a bunch of Californians. Oh man, it's, oh, it's an earthquake. I wonder how big it'll be, you know? And I'm just like, I'm like, evacuate. <laughs> I grab Allison's hand and I'm like, let's go. And she just wasn't quick to pick up on what I was putting down. So she like just sat, sat there and I just walked out of the house without her. And I thought afterwards, that was wrong. And like, I feel like a bad husband, you know, I just left her. I should have picked her up and ran out. That would have been appropriate. Actually, no, I started praying. I was like, I was like yeah, I need to not be responding in fear. I have to respond in wisdom. So there's my embarrassment out there for you all to see. Much better now. Much better now. I just pick her up, carry her out and we're good. Um, no, I'm, I'm actually a lot better now. But the idea is this, the sense of self-preservation is a natural human thing, and you've all felt it at different times. Um, Jesus would have felt this, do you not think? Remember before the cross, it says in Matthew 26, verse 39, and he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. A desire to not have to go to the cross. That's a natural desire. It's not even an evil desire. I don't want to suffer pain. That's not an evil desire. The evil desire would be yielding into the yielding to this thing, right? To have like agendas and plans to violate the will of God or something like that. But he says, and he concludes that prayer with, yet not as I will, but as you will. And so we have Jesus' human nature, not when you go to the cross, but his his, you know, I'm I'm I have solidarity. I will do the thing that I'm to do, more so than any of us. In John 12, 27. He talks about this and says, now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. So we see the conflict, the natural human sense of self-preservation and not wanting this suffering and pain and hardship and shame and agony. I can't even imagine beyond the physical pain of the cross. I can't imagine the spiritual goings on. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, taking my shame upon him. Wow. I mean, I've, I've been given his righteousness. I've taken his righteousness upon me. And I'm like, wow. But to think about the, al- the alternative thing that happened. Um, wow. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. So he's, there is no sense of him that is going to uh, yield to that thing. So he was tempted, but he did not sin. So I think that the, the incarnation helps us understand the riddle of Jesus being tempted. And we understand now also why he had to become flesh so he could go through the process because he's doing it all for us. He's succeeding where we fail that he might be the spotless lamb of God without blemish so he can be sacrificed for us. So Satan comes, he tempts him to worship him. He tempts him to do various things. You can read about those in the different gospels. You could consider, you know, how it's like the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. I think it feels like those temptations are each related to one of those particular types of sins that we read about in First John. Um, it may be that with those temptations, they had little appeal to Jesus simply because of his goodness. When, when someone is incredibly good, they may have a 
motive or opportunity, you know, means motive opportunity to do something wicked, but there's simply such a repulsion to the idea. There's one man who, when a woman approaches him, he goes and cheats on his wife, and another man, a woman approaches him, and he just gets offended. Regardless of the fact that he might feel some sense of temptation, but he responds, he responds righteously and rightly. Um, and so temptation hits us differently depending on what our inner character is like. And that's the next thing we'll understand about Christ. What's his inner character? Perfectly holy, perfectly good. Um, so here's what we know. Jesus is one person with two natures. He was really tempted, yet he did not sin. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that. He was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So Christians are all in agreement here. Unless you're some kind of weird Christian that you spell like in a different way, like the word the way you spell heretic or something like that. Like this is this is simple truths of Christianity, right? He was tempted. He had two natures. He really did not sin. Um, and uh, some people still debate one thing, though. So I'm going to teach you guys a theological, a couple theological terms. You do not need to remember these, but some of you will will want to hear them. So I'll share them with you. And it has to do with the concept of could Jesus have actually sinned? We all agree he didn't. Everyone agrees he did not sin, but could he have sinned? Was it in his, was there a potential for him to actually do it? This is a doctrine called the peccability or impeccability of Christ. Weirdest sounding doctrine I've ever heard. Peccability. The idea is this, to say that Jesus is peccable means he's able to not sin, but he's also able to sin. He's capable of not sinning, but it's not to say he's incapable of sinning. Do you catch the difference? That's impeccability. Impeccability is to say Jesus is not able to sin. So peccable, he's able to not sin. Impeccable, not able to sin. Now this may be like, well, you're like splitting hairs, Mike, but how you answer this question might say a lot about what you believe about who Jesus is. So I want to talk about it a little bit, and also because Benny Hinn gets this doctrine wrong and does so in one of his books, and I just like taking advantage of an opportunity to talk about how wrong Benny Hinn is on something. Um, so the vast majority of Christians are solidly in the category of impeccability. Jesus was, it was not even possible for Jesus to sin, possible to be tempted, but not to sin. That's the, the most, most of us are in that category, and that's certainly the case. Um, Jesus, we, we would say he had means to sin. He had the physical ability to sin. He had external motivation to do, the, to do something that was sinful, like fleeing from the cross, um, calling angels to save them, uh, just, just killing everybody who was attacking him. Like he could have just done it like that. But Jesus, he never stopped being God. So he didn't have the inclination or weakness of character required to sin. Sin is not like this super ability you have. It's a weakness of your character. And so we would say Jesus didn't have that because he was always God. We don't take away the fact that he had two natures, human and divine. The human allowed him to be tempted. The divine nature divine nature meant he couldn't sin. But there are those who will give an argument for peccability for the idea that Jesus perhaps could have sinned but chose not to. Um, to me, my whole worldview explodes when I consider this as a possibility. Like, what do we have? Like, the son sinning against the father as a possibility. It doesn't make any sense to me. Um, but one of the arguments for peccability is this. And it's probably the chief argument. Um, I'll give you two of them. One, it had to be fair. It's not fair if Jesus couldn't sin. It's just not fair. If he couldn't sin and he went in our place. And, and I think that there's a problem with this. What it, Fair? Like, do you build your theology based on what you think is fair? Like your gut reaction to things? Because then you're going to become, what, maybe a universalist? 
Now I'm going to become an annihilationist. Uh, I'm going to just keep changing my theology because of whatever I perceive as fair. I need to go off revelation, not like my impulses here about what I feel is fair. Um, Second, I don't think it's fair. And, And the biggest issue here is there's no scripture to support this idea. It just has to be fair. It's not fair if Jesus can't actually sin. There's another argument though, and that's that Jesus, he's not really human if he doesn't have the ability to sin. Because the ability to sin is, the, in, is inherent in the very nature of what it means to be human. And if you say he couldn't sin, you're saying he wasn't human. There's several problems with this view. One, I will be in eternity. In eternity, not sinning. I'll still be human though. Right? So that's a little odd. Um, when he made... Uh, when, he, when Jesus came incarnate, if you're going to say his human nature requires the ability to sin and his divine nature requires the ability to not sin, you're now saying that the incarnation is simply impossible because you can't have these two natures. And that, that's what it does. It, it, it misses out. Um, and there's no scripture that supports this either. We don't have clear scripture saying to be human is to be able to sin. Like I don't see this in the Bible anywhere. Um, so there's arguments here against this. Uh, number one, it does not, and this is the biggest issue, it does not take into account Christ's nature as God. God is holy Jesus is God. God cannot sin, not because of any lack of power or ability. God could could say things, but he won't say lies. Not because he lacks the power to say certain words, but because, because his character is too strong to do something wrong. That's the idea. Um, so God is holy. Jesus is God. God cannot sin. The incarnation was not a trading off of one nature for the other. It was both natures at the same time. So Jesus didn't stop being God to become man. That actually becomes a heretical view. And it is a view that some people hold. Um, But no, he's still God in the flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. What glory? If he stopped being God, what glory? He's just a man. You know, no, he's still, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. So he's in bodily form. The two natures together at once. So to say that Jesus can sin, since he's still God, is to say that God can sin, which we have scripture that specifically refutes that. So that's why we say he can be tempted, but not sin. If we recognize that goodness is an essential part of God's nature, then we also see the consequences of saying that Jesus had capacity to do evil, which is, which is moral failure in his own heart. We're saying that he's not ultimately good, which means he's ultimately not even God anymore. It's weird. Does that mean, though, that Jesus wasn't really human? No. Uh, Again, in our exalted state, we're not going to sin. This doesn't make us less human. Jesus, he could experience great temptation due to his human nature, but could not yield to it internally due to his holiness. Uh, An analogy that might help this out a little bit is if you think about the human nature as being like a a wire, like a metal wire, um, like a cable, like say a microphone cable or something. It's flexible. It's easy to bend. It's very weak. You think of the divine nature as being like a crowbar. Or a, or a metal, or, you know, metal uh, rod. And you take that wire and you hold it alongside the metal rod and we see this inherently weak thing will not bend because it's coupled with this unbendable thing. And that's the idea. We have the human nature, the divine nature. And for those who complain, um, C.S. Lewis put it something like this. I'll paraphrase. He said something like this. Um, for those who complain that uh, it's not fair that Jesus, you know, was so much stronger than us when it comes to resisting sin and it's just not, he said this is like a person who's drowning in the water and they're and someone comes to save them and then they complain because it's not fair that you're saving me because you have one foot firmly planted on the bank 
you need to be drowning too to, to fairly save me. It's like this doesn't make any sense. It's just human reasoning that falls apart and is unbiblical. So let's get to Benny Hinn. Let's get to Benny Hinn. <laughs> Benny Hinn in his book, Good Morning, Holy Spirit. Um, <laughs> you guys are already laughing at it. He said, had the Holy Spirit not been with Jesus, he may likely have sinned. This is a popular teaching nowadays to misunderstand the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of Christ um, as part of a way of misunderstanding the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of Christians today. Um, In his original uh, printing of this book, Good Morning Holy Spirit, he actually said, if the Holy Spirit had not been with Jesus, he would have sinned. But the publishers got a lot of complaints, so they rewrote it because apparently his theology is flexible based on how many complaints come in. Um, Sorry, I have so many issues with, with Benny that I don't know what to say. Uh, but anyways, I'll go on and read. Here's what he says. The Holy, had the Holy Spirit not been with Jesus, he may likely have sinned. That's right. It was the Holy Spirit who was the power that kept him pure. If you believe that Jesus was not able to sin, which I do, and I've tried to convince you of that as well, then why would Satan waste his time tempting him? Mic drop, right? That's his basic idea. Jesus, he would have sinned, or at least likely would have sinned, if not for the Holy Spirit falling upon him at baptism. But there's a few problems with this. First off, Jesus was around for 30 years without sinning. 30 years. How long have you guys made it? 30 seconds? 30 minutes? It depends on how aware you are of your sinfulness, right? Because I used to feel like I was going a whole week when I first started walking with the Lord. I'm like, I feel like I could go. Now I'm like, I don't want to put a clock on it, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. so Jesus went 30 years, and that was before the Holy Spirit descending upon him at his baptism. I don't think he was ever really apart from the Holy Spirit, though, to be honest. But anyway, I think that's a misunderstanding of the role of the Holy Spirit in in the life of Jesus. Um, But this also goes um, against the idea that we're, oh, we're just like Jesus. And so we're going to do everything Jesus did exactly as he did in his his life in the Gospels. And I would say, well, while he's like a target we seek, He's not an expectation we set, I don't think. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll talk more about that one of these days. But here's another another thought. I have the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit means then, you know, you don't sin anymore ever, well then why, don't, why do I? And while you're judging me, why do you? <laughs> um, right? The presence of the Holy Spirit doesn't, nece- doesn't mean that my will is overtaken and I no longer have decisions to make about sin. I have to make a choice. Jesus' decisions about sin were about him making choices, not just the power of the Spirit overcoming and overpowering his will. That's, that's a weird theology. And then finally, Benny Hinn says, why would Satan waste his time tempting him if it wasn't possible for Jesus to sin? And here I go, let's not build our theology based upon what we think Satan might think. <laughs> this is a really bad way to make your theology. Well, I think Satan might think, therefore it's true. Um, I, have a, I have a few problems with this. For one, I don't really want to guess at what Satan's motives are, nor do I need to obsess over him. We often obsess over the criminal element in our culture, and sometimes we can obsess too much over what Satan might be thinking and feeling. Um, how deceived is Satan anyways? He's the father of lies, and he lied to himself before anybody else. Oh, I'm going to ascend. I will do this. Well, why would Satan try to be like God if it wasn't possible? Because he's a moron. Well, that's why. The, he's caught up in sin, and pride, and foolishness, and lies. 
So we don't assume that he can accomplish whatever he tries. For instance, Revelation has him fighting against God. Do I conclude that he can win? Why would Satan fight against God if he couldn't win? Because he's Satan. Like this is because he's evil. This is the idea. There's plenty of people who knowingly go into a losing battle because of their pride. I've seen it over and over again in life, and I think Satan is a, is a huge picture of this. His pride causes him to go forward into this losing battle. He wants to attack. Whether or not he thinks he can win, I don't know. I don't know. Um, finally, there's a knockdown argument against this, and it's from what we know about Satan, right? Satan continues to fight a battle he's destined to lose, and there's there's even the implication that that the, the enemy knows this when the uh, the uh, the demoniac man comes to Jesus and they say, "Have you come to to um, torment us before the time?" They're, they're cognizant of a time when they will be tormented in the future, like they know judgment's coming to them. Um, it seems like they do. Um, yeah. Plus, my final argument would just be this. Benny Hinn. All right, let's look at verse 12 in Mark <laughs> chapter 1. Immediately, the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. The Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. Um, the idea here is that Jesus is not acting merely according to his own volition, not that he doesn't have his own volition. He does. He has his own will. But he's following the leading of the Holy Spirit here. Um, he's willfully doing these things. They have like a unity and purpose. Um, and we see this sort of complex description in the Bible about the unity between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Where Jesus is like, I lay down my life and I take it up. I have the power to do it. And then he's like, um, the Father will raise me up. So... They're both being given credit because there's the Trinity. There's like a, they're all doing it. It's not one or the other. There's a unity there. Um, but I want to talk now about the typology that we see here. It says here that Jesus went out into the wilderness. The wilderness is like a desolate, inhospitable place. It's not like what you're thinking of the Sahara Desert, like these rolling sands, sand dunes. It's more like California-style desert where it's, it's rocks and dirt and shrubs, but no one really lives there, right? Nobody in their right mind anyways. Um, it's desolate, inhospitable, and we can contrast this with Adam. Jesus went into the wilderness. Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan in the garden. Beautiful garden. Hospitable, wonderful place to be. There, Adam was our representative. He was the first Adam, the first man, and he fell and brought us with him, so to speak. Jesus, he arrives in the wilderness, not the garden, but this fallen world, the thing that seems to picture the fallen world, and he overcomes that same tempter, Satan. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Jesus is the last Adam, so we're not making this typology up. This is the typology scripture's already given us. Revelations, uh, Revelation, the book. I can't believe I said Revelations. I try not to do that. Um, Revelation tells us that there's imagery of the, um, the Garden of Eden in the final restoration of all things as well. So Jesus... You know, Adam comes, experiences the garden, falls to sin at the temptation of Satan ultimately. Jesus comes into the wilderness, the fallen state of man. He experiences temptation, overcomes, and he eventually restores to us not only a restoration of the garden, but of so much more and so much better than what there even was before. Adam was also, Jesus was with the beasts, it says in Mark. Adam was with the beasts too, but they were tamed beasts. They were beasts that were subservient and obedient to Adam. He named them. They have, it was a good relationship. Jesus, he's with the wild beasts. And the idea here is that there's danger. 
He comes to the fallen world. The wilderness, though, is also, that's the Adam typology. There's Israeli or Israel typology here, I think, as well. And um, it has to do with the wilderness. The wilderness in the life of Israel is really important. All right, they go out into the wilderness from, from Egypt. Um, they're driven into the wilderness. There they are tested and there they fail. Let me read some scriptures to you. Psalm 106, verse 13 through 15. I read this earlier, but I, I wanted to relate it to the wilderness temptation that Jesus faced in the wilderness time that Israel had. They quickly forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but craved intensely in the wilderness. They tempted God in the desert, so he gave them their request, but sent a wasting disease among them. It was a food-related issue. They, did, they, they yielded to their cravings. Jesus, he's fasting. He doesn't yield to his cravings. He's the, the greater Israel or the fulfillment of Israel typologically. Psalm 78, verse 18, it says, And in their heart, they put God to the test by asking food according to their desire. Satan specifically tempts him. He'll make these stones into bread according to his desire. In Exodus 17, 2, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? So in, in the wilderness, Israel tested God. Jesus, he's in the wilderness. And he's the one who's tested, but he will not test the Lord. As he said to, to Satan, do not test the Lord your God. So he's, he's accomplishing what Israel failed at. This is like a, um, a, uh, another, a typology by contrast, like it is with Adam. Typology by contrast. And this is, I think, um, we get from Jesus himself when he calls himself the true vine. In John 13, he's like, I think it's John, 13, John 15. He's like, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. Now, the, the Jews would have thought, no, we're the true vine. We're the vine. And I think both of those things are true. Yeah, you're the vine, but you're the vine because of the promise of this, the true vine. And if you are in him and you abide in him, then you'll be part of the vine. And you could even be grafted in, as we read about later, thank God, um, into Christ. So this is like a key to prophecy is that as we look at the Old Testament, we see typology, we see literary, literary prophecy, I like to call it. Um, it's just this idea of these pictures and these... these um, these major themes going throughout the scripture that all relate to Jesus Christ and how he fulfills them in such interesting details. So it's not always a direct, this is a plain fulfillment of that. That does happen. But probably even more often, the New Testament, when it says fulfilled, it's speaking of other senses of fulfilled. And so we're good to know that as we're reading our New Testament. And you go to reference the old and you're like, well, that verse doesn't seem, oh, to back up a little bit, read the whole section, and you'll see how it connects to Christ. Um, so... Verse 13 says he was in the wilderness for a specific length of time, 40 days. Um, interestingly, Mark doesn't mention fasting. That's We get Matthew and Luke that talk about Jesus fasting. Mark doesn't mention it. So the 40 days has significance beyond whether or not he fasted. That's my conclusion there. That's how long Jesus went without eating, but it has other significance. It's just a length of time. And 40 days is, I think, maybe related to the idea that Israel as a nation was in the wilderness for 40 years. And for 40 years, they tested God. And for 40 days, Jesus was the one who was tempted and tested. So the fasting is only mentioned in the other gospels, like I said, Matthew and Luke. Uh, he was probably still drinking water. I don't think we should take Jesus's 40-day fast as a instruction that all Christians are supposed to fast for 40 days. We don't see people doing that in the scripture. This is like a super rare thing and you very possibly would die. Um, and that wouldn't be a holy death. That would be don't tempt the Lord your God. Like, yes, the Holy Spirit led him out to do this thing. Um, Moses, though, he did fast for 40 days as well. 
for 40 days and 40 nights during the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. And then after the breaking of the law, he did it again. And so we're seeing a connection between Jesus and Moses, right? The giving of the law, which they broke, Jesus, he's going to come and he's going to be bringing grace. The law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So he's a prophet like unto Moses. Elijah is the other one who fasted for 40 days as well. Elijah. And he fasted when he went up to Horeb, uh, interestingly enough, the location of it. So there's connection with Adam, Israel, and Moses in this passage where Jesus is tempted. Um, Verse 13, again, it says the angels were ministering to him. If we read the other parallel passages in Matthew and Luke, we see they're, they're, they're probably bringing him food at the end of the 40 days. Which also connects us to Elijah. At the time he fasted 40 days, angels fed him. It was before he fasted. Angels in 1 Kings 19, angels, they brought him food, he ate it, and he went in the strength of that food 40 days. But I think the main thing with the angels ministering to him that Mark's getting at, and God's communicating to us through this, is that Jesus is dependent. Here we have God Almighty. He is dependent. He's hungry. He's tempted. And he's requiring others to take care of his needs. So he's dependent. That's the idea. So let's talk a little bit about Satan. Uh, The temptation by Satan. Satan, according to scripture, is a liar and the father of lies. He's the tempter. That's uh, 1 Thessalonians 3.5. He's your adversary. Interesting, he's called your adversary in 1 Peter 5.8. Your adversary. And he's the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4. The Bible presents Satan as a real individual who is sort of the ruler of the powers of wickedness. Those in rebellion to God are under his dominion. That's the presentation we get from scripture. He is not, however, the evil opposite of God. Like we have a good God and an evil God and they're equal in power or something like that. That's not a Christian worldview thing at all. That's not a biblical perspective at all. He's a created being. He's an angelic being that rebelled and he seems like he had authority over other angels. Scripture even says Satan has his angels, which seems like they're all the ones that ended up rebelling with him. One tactic of Satan and his minions is to tempt and do tempt to tempt us incorporating lies into those very temptations. And that's interesting because he does that um, with Eve. Has God really said, he just used some questions. Has God, did he really say that? Trying to get you to question and doubt and um, yeah. But Jesus, he's victorious over these things. And so when Jesus, you know, he beats temptation, he's also beating Satan the God of this age, the ruler of the powers of rebellion, of the darkness of this age. Colossians 2.15, it says, when he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So Jesus comes to fight our battle for us on our behalf against temptation, but also against Satan, the one who is in control of the world. Although God is sovereignly in control of all things, Satan is, is still the God of this age or the God of the world. Lowercase g, not really God, but, you know, in the idolatrous sense. Um, This is just one victory in the gospel of Mark. He keeps beating Satan throughout the gospel of Mark. He beats him temptation wise. He's also going to beat him by casting out demons um, and overcoming the sicknesses and stuff like that, that are some, in some ways connected to Satan. And of course, finally through the cross and then the the resurrection. So we're just going to keep, he just keeps, we're just going to watch Satan lose a lot over and over again. That's the idea. So the question you might have, though, is if Jesus is tempted by Satan, is Satan tempting you personally? 
And that's kind of where it gets really real to me because of all the questions I have about theology and about following Jesus and stuff like that, the personal issues with temptation to sin are the biggest issues in my life. And I'm sure most, most of you guys probably identify with this, I imagine. Um, is Satan tempting you? Because this outward extreme is like Satan actually shows up and you're having a conversation and you hear him say things. So I don't think that outward extreme tends to happen, but I think Satan does tempt us in other ways. First, uh, First Thessalonians 3, 5, it says, for this reason, when I could no lo- could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So even though Satan doesn't seem was, you know, going and having conversations with the people in Thessalonica, but he's there tempting them through other means. So it can be a satanic temptation, whether or not we have a, are having a conversation with Satan. Because his corporation, his organization, his company, so to speak, can tempt you. He uses the world. First John 5.19 says the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. And so he presents to you temptation through the world. Ephesians 2.2 says that Satan is the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. So even individuals in the world pulling you towards the sinful life that they're living, that is also a satanic temptation. Not that they're aware of it. Not that they're like, all right, here's the plan. I'm going to go over to Bob and I'm going to tell him, let's come over here with me. But secretly I'm plotting. To, it's like, we're not, that's not the case. It's just that they're, they're unbeknownst to themselves. They're under the power of the enemy. And of course, they're going to have that negative influence on others. Also, Satan uses his demonic lackeys. We know that he has his, his own angels, false or fallen, I should say, angels. Uh, Matthew 25, 41 and Revelation 12, 7 and 9 say that the devil has angels. The devil and his angels made war. Ephesians 6, 11, it tells us to put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So in a, uh, maybe not an individual Satan shows up and has a conversation with you, but in a very real sense, you're engaged in a spiritual battle with Satan, his forces, his his control of the world, and his demonic uh, entities that he does engage in our lives with. And he's clever, and he knows human nature, and he knows the right time to, to attack, attack you with different things. He knows what he's doing. And it's his goal to use temptation to under to just undermine your relationship with God. So I think we have two bad tendencies. We, we might say everything is Satan, and then we ignore personal responsibility. Right? Because, hey, if everything was Satan, you, you would just be attacked, but you, the temptation wouldn't work. I am accountable for the decisions I make to sin. I need to not blame everything on Satan. Um, that's a bad idea. But the other tendency that we fall into, and this I see more often, is to never see spiritual warfare for what it is. Like, when's the last time you were involved in spiritual warfare? And you're like, well, I don't know. It was like a couple weeks ago. And I was like, is, really? You think it's been that long? <laughs> like, I think this stuff's happening all the time. If we don't think we're in spiritual war, then we don't act like we are. So if we, if we don't realize the enemy's storming the gates, then we don't get our weapons ready, so to speak. We don't pray. We don't seek the Lord deeply. We don't evaluate our lives and we don't resist the temptations that come because we, don't, we, see, them, we see the Trojan horse instead of the Trojans in the horse. You know, and we, we don't see the battle that's coming. James 4 tells us, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And so it gives us the solution to this. I have a, I have a personal resistance to the powers and the work of Satan, whether that's an d- actual demonic attack on my life, which can happen, 
or if that's in the temptations and pull of the world, or if that's in some strange, abnormal, sudden desire, idea, temptation to do something that I know is just wrong. But how do I resist? How do I resist the devil? James 4 tells us, it says in verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. So stop doing that sinful thing. Real basic. Sin opens the door to the destruction that Satan wants to bring in your life. That's why he's tempting you because he knows the destruction that comes with your compromise. So stop the sin and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So that's the heart issue. What led me to that sin in the first place? What is going on in my heart that I would even yield to that sin to start with? Lord, I need to have a broken heart before you. I know your grace. I know you'll forgive me. I know you'll receive me, but I want to come to you fully and not half-heartedly while I harbor the thing that led me down that path, you know, like do that, that heart thing, purify your hearts, you double-minded, be miserable and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. The idea is that if, if I'm not feeling broken over sin, then maybe I'm not actually being very repentant about the issue. So he's like, mourn over it. Let your heart break over it. Don't, not in a hopeless sense. Because of the hope you have in Christ, you need to break your heart. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. God will lift you up. God will lift you up. So be broken that you might be healed. So trusting God, draw near to God. You have trust in God. Put your faith and trust and rest your hope in him. Cleanse your hands. So getting rid of the, the sin in my life and then um, purging my heart as well in a, in a state of repentance. That, that's how you're going to fight Satan. You're going to fight Satan by fighting your sin. That's the idea because he's the tempter. So he's, he's using your sin to ruin you and it will ruin you. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. A man will, uh, whatever man sows that he will also reap. But there's good news. Jesus beat him already and your victory is in him, not in your battle. Your victory is in Jesus, not in your battle with Satan. So you, you hold on to that victory. We fight from a place of victory in that sense. So over our temptation, over the lies of Satan, over his kingdom attacking us, or even some demonic attack that might come into our lives, the thing for us is that we're not like Jesus. I'm going to go out to the wilderness all alone, and I'm going to fight, and I'm going to win. No, I'm going to be like Jesus. I'm going to draw near to God. I'm going to hold on to Christ. I'm going to trust in him. That'll be where my, where my victory is. My victory is in him, not in my own battle. In a sense, we need to be wary not terrified, but a healthy, healthy fearfulness about the temptation that comes into our lives. And uh, if I'm just completely honest, I think that in our modern American culture, we have really compromised the sense of holiness that we're supposed to have in Christ. And um, that's us yielding to spiritual warfare. We're losing the battle there. We're losing the battle wherever we compromise our sense of holiness in Christ. Am I calling? That's, that's the battle. So I want to talk really quick, briefly. Let me see what time it is because we have no, no clock anymore. All right, we're good. About two things that we can watch out for. I guess I'm not going to get into the specific scriptures that were quoted, but I will mention this. Scripture twisting was like really the thing for Satan tempting Jesus. He's twisting scripture. He didn't do what he did with Eve. Did God really say? No, that's not true. You won't die. With Jesus, it was different. With Jesus, it was like scripture out of context to try to twist and manipulate. So if these are his tactics to challenge God's word, either tell you it's not true, or if you're, or if he can't get you to believe it's not true, then he's going to twist it to try to dilute it or set or get you skewed, get you off. You need to know the context of scriptures for your spiritual battles. 
Like you really have to know it. Because have you ever heard it? Christians quote the Bible to justify their sin. Where do you think they got that from? Like, This is definitely temptation from the enemy. I've got to know the context. I have to know the rest of scripture. And I have to beware itching ears. Because it's really tempting to want the interpretation that gives you the yes, go for it, do what you want to do. This is what scripture talks about when it says in 2 Timothy 4, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled. It's an interesting word picture. Have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will be and turn aside to myths. So I combat bad theology all the time online. That's like on my heart to do that. But then I wonder sometimes. We talked about Benny Hinn and I'm like, but why does anybody even listen to this guy? Like, why would they? Right? It's, it's this prosperity stuff. It's just, it's all skewed. It's constant versus out of context. It's just, this is not Christianity. And it occurred to me after a while, people who, who tend to follow these false teachers are following them because those people are tickling their ears. And that people tend to find the, the, the person they want, the person who wants good, solid biblical teaching and context and theology, they tend to find that. The person who wants to be given justifications for sin, they tend to find that. The person who, who's uh, materialistic and obsessed with prosperity, they're going to find the prosperity teachers. These people, they cast out their false teaching. And those who grab onto it, they're grabbing onto something that tickled their ear a lot of the time. So we have to be, car- be careful of that. Know the context, know the scriptures, don't let anybody tickle your ears. And the next thing we have to watch out for in our temptation is justification. Um. When, G- when Satan tells Jesus, um, you know, hey, it's written, you know, he, you know, he will send his angels charge over you, not letting your foot touch the stone. So jump off this big thing here and you're going to, yeah, God's, it'll be great. And this is like a justification. Oh, I, I have a spiritual motive for this ungodly behavior I'm about to, you know, engage in. I remember hearing a pastor, he would yell at, he was a youth pastor, yell at the students like mean, like get angry in the flesh and yell at him. And then his excuse was, well, sometimes they need that. I'm like, no, (laughs) no, this is just a justification for you to be in the flesh. You're in the flesh. That's, that's the real issue is you're in the flesh. You're being tempted to be in the flesh, but you, this pride has you doing it anyways. And, um, we need a really strong grasp, um, of our actual motives versus what we tell ourselves our motives are. We really do. Beware when your convictions conveniently change to fit your desires. I know I thought this was wrong, but now that I really want to do it, you know, it just doesn't seem that wrong anymore. I think I was being too conservative, (laughs) you know? Um, Watch out. No excuses. No excuses. Make no provision for the flesh, the scripture says. Um, So watch out for justifications because that's how Satan was tempting Jesus, but it's also a temptation we face. And finally, I'll say this is with the issue of sin, you you need a really strong grasp on God's grace. All these things are ways to avoid sin, but um, Jesus did what we could not so that we could be washed and clean and forgiven. And in your struggle with sin, one of the things that will happen is, right, first tempt you to sin and then condemn you over it. Tempt you to sin, condemn you over it. Again and again and again and again. And Jesus, he helps us on both sides of that problem. 
He's going to help us be delivered from the temptation to sin as we seek him and put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh, as we don't believe the lies and we don't listen to justifications and we just follow. And 1 John 2, 1, one of my favorite verses, it says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I am not required to live a sinless life to be forgiven by the grace of God. I am desired. I'm called. But that is not a requirement for my salvation. Now, this is no excuse for me to go sin, but you know that. Right? If, you, if, if, if anybody is thinking, yes, that means I have good reason to sin, I'll be like, you need to get saved. <laughs> and then you'll realize that this is just relief and grace I need for my daily life. I don't, want, I don't want to sin, Lord. I want to follow Jesus Christ. But I need constant mercy and constant grace. And I, you just need to remember again, Jesus picked Paul the apostle because he was such a wicked man. So he'd be an example of the grace of God to one who persecuted and murdered and blasphemed. He needs, we need, I should say, we need to know about the incredible grace of God in Christ. Never an excuse for sin, but constantly forgiveness. Next week, we're going to get into Jesus' preaching, his, his preaching repentance in particular. We're going to get into the, the kingdom of God and what that is, and we'll get into the calling of the 12 disciples and Jesus' unique teaching style and how that compares to the culture of the time. It's, anyway, it's just neat stuff as we're going through the Gospel of Mark. I'm excited about it. Um, uh, but today, we just need to remember for application that our internal battle with sin, it comes before our external service and ministry, just like with Jesus Baptism, temptation, then ministry. Before I do the serve the Lord thing, right, I need to make sure I'm handling my internal walk with Christ. And that's what I'm confronted with every day, just as real as it is with you. It is with me. Every day. I need to follow Jesus so I can serve Jesus. But I can't get rid of the follow part and make me and just make me feel okay because I'm doing the serve part. Right. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your overcoming of all temptation. Jesus tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. You conquered. You conquered. You conquered our sins. You conquered our rebellion, our failures, where we blew it. You succeeded. You conquered Satan. And now you give us that victory to stand in in Christ. And that's our job is just to stand there, just to abide in Christ. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to do so. To get our eyes upon you, to... Um, deal with temptation in our own in our own lives in our own hearts right now Lord even even now to remember that there's grace abundant grace to forgive all of this stuff but we need to turn our hearts back to you if there's a sin issue if there's rebellion and so Lord we pray let us walk close with you forgiven by your grace and inspired to follow Jesus in holiness because of who he is and what he's done in Jesus name amen Thank you.